It's five o'clock somewhere, people. Just gonna let you know that. Oh, it is five o'clock. Originally, I wanted to do a fireside chat with Brian Zisk, packing for Hawaii, but he turned me down on that. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Nick Adler. This panel is about experiences, which I thought when Brian first brought it up was really simple, but it's probably the most used word today. Like, it is the broadest topic ever. So if you do have a beer, every time we say the word experience, please help yourself and uh, play a drinking game with us. We're going to be doing that up here. So every time we say experience, we're all going to have to take a drink. And if you say um, engagement. Oh, engagement? I don't really use that word. What about space? Yes. Space. Ready? Drink. I'm going to let the panel introduce themselves, um, but we're going to talk about experiences from a couple different points, one being the artist, one being the fan, and then a little bit of the community that those two um, areas connect in, whether that's the offline space or in the digital space. But we have a great panel here, some people that I work with like Dan and some people I just met like Jimmy. So I'll let, uh, we'll go down the line, let everybody introduce themselves. Hello, uh, my name is Jimmy Chamberlain. I'm a founding member, original drummer of the Smashing Pumpkins, now current uh, CEO of Live One Inc. Uh, what, is, uh, what is Live One? Um, good question. Um, live One Inc. is a social media company um, that creates uh, social ecosystems around live stream content. Um, we basically try to create uh, uh, as much of an analog experience around live stream video uh, as possible in a digital context um, by providing uh, communication tools, uh, an ability to look and see and feel uh, what people look like in and around the event, and try to provide uh, as much of an environment uh, for the content to be successful as possible. Benji Rogers, um, uh, I'm founder and president of a company called Pledge Music. Um, we help artists directly engage with their fans. We, fans, we offer experiences um, around the creation of albums, uh, live events, tours, EPs, you name it. Um, yeah, that's what we do. Hi, I'm Haney Nada, and I'm a fucking suit. <laughs> you do it well. You do it really well. Sorry, I'll, I'll take that back. I'll take that back. Um, <laughs> Haney Nada, I'm actually a partner at GGV Capital, which is a venture capital firm. A big portion of our focus is the music business, so I've, we've invested a lot of money in music. We're investors in Pandora, investors in SoundCloud, Bandpage, Jukely, and other companies in the portfolio that have done really, really well, obviously, uh, investing in the music sector. My name is Dan Berkowitz. I'm the founder and CEO of CID Entertainment. We create experiences... <laughs> Oh, sorry. For fans of live music and sports. Wow. Okay. Thirsty group. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about a little bit is we say this word experiences, and a lot of what I think everybody up here does is adds on to what should just be a great experience of that buying a ticket, going to a show, whether it's parking or sound system, those are things that I think every fan deserves. But what this table really does, it, it takes that experience to the next level. How can it become something special, um, more special than just seeing your favorite band, but actually meeting them or getting up on stage with them? And I think the process really starts with what Benji's company does um, and actually helps bring experience to... Uh, making the record and kind of the the very the start of the process. You want to talk a little sure. bit about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I created Pledge in the first place was I was a musician for years and I was touring, and, and there was basically two avenues available. There was a one-size-fits-all consumer experience, which in today's market is largely listening. You put something up, you hit play, you listen, that's, that's your shot. The thing... My objection to that was if you send everybody through that channel, they're not able to spend it a way that they would choose to. So when Rufus Wainwright decides he wants to make an opera, he can invite 20 fans per night to come up on stage and sing in the Alleluia Chorus for a record that does not yet, ex you know, they pre order the album, they get this experience. When he records it in January and releases it April, May, he will deliver the album to 
his fans, but they've watched it kind of trickle out and come to be over the course of a year. And what I consistently found was is if you send someone to a way to listen to a song over and over again, they may well do that. But there's a certain bunch of them that want to buy the ability to come in the studio and listen to a early mixes. They, they want to, may want to come to a sound check. And there was no middle ground. There was sort of a kind of like, you've got these rabid super fans, they call them aficionados, who were 34% of all music spending. And you're sending them to a place where they can't spend any money, they can't show affinity, they can't do anything. And what we found was that artists are really interesting if you don't know them. When you know them, it can change. But you know, you know, from the outside, when you see artists do what they do, it's a fascinating process. And ultimately, what I think most people forget, artists and particularly people that work in the music industry, um, is that most people don't do what they want to do with their lives. And they really look up to and admire artists. So when artists go in the studio and they put sweat, blood, passion into these moments, it's all lost. And then a label shoves it out through a traditional means of getting music to people and they're leaving you know, billions on the table every year because fans want more and simply can't get it. So do you think, you know, a lot of people say these experience, they start to take away the, the, the you know, that relationship with, with the band. Like, now that you know them, now that they're social and you can talk to them, there isn't this kind of, uh, you know, I can't touch them. So mystique. It, yeah, mystique. You are almost saying that it's the opposite, that when, the, when they start engaging on these... You know, I think the people who would be put off by knowing too much are your general consumers, and they're mm-hmm. not going to touch this anyway. Right. They want low friction. They, they, want, they want to hit play, on, and, and some, they don't care where it comes from. Just make, make, make music play. They'll talk to their phone, play Radiohead. Radiohead, they don't care how it gets there. They just want to hear it. Other people want to know what drum heads are being used on the recording session. So I don't think it kills the mystery, and it's also completely within the artist's control. You know, you can if 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 it's hard for an artist to once a week look into a phone and record a video update or take some pictures in the studio and share them, I mean that's that's that shouldn't be too much to ask. And it's certainly, I mean, we've seen it to the level whereby we have to strip the metadata out of photographs because fans will find the studio through them. Wow. That's the level of fandom there. They'll spend an average of sixty-one dollars per transaction. Now that's not for everybody, but it should be offered to those who want it. And, and Dan, you're you're basically taking that experience to a whole nother level with you know with what you're doing down in uh, in, in in the playa with uh, Luke Bryan, right? It's literally this is a whole 360 experience around what Benji's talking about. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Um, yeah, I mean, so. Um, CID started as a company that serviced uh, artists and festivals providing experiences to their fans. Um, so, hopefully there's a bathroom close by. So now... Um, <laughs> we've, uh, we've started uh, creating, creating our own events, which is the word I'll use now because we have to slow down. Um, Really uh, centered around artists that people love. Um, you know, we're lucky enough to work with uh, Luke Bryan, who just took down the award for the CMA Entertainer of the Year, um, which is arguably the biggest award in country music. Um, so we have an event with him in January called Crash My Playa. Um, that's down uh, at a resort in Riviera Maya, Mexico, about a half hour south of Playa del Carmen, where it's, um, you know, it's really going to be a, um, a collective of some of his biggest fans. Um, we made we designed the packages where uh, you could get in for uh, as little as about fourteen hundred dollars, um, but there are you know there are there are much higher end packages. So we tried to make it as accessible as possible. We did payment plans for people to make it again as accessible as possible. But um, everyone's really 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 excited about this because not only do they get to share um, or do they get to experience something that they're very passionate about, but they get to share that with people that have a like minded passion. So that's really that's like what I geek out on. It's yeah. like getting people together that have a common bond, have a common passion, and you know, having people who are willing to travel to Mexico, willing to go on this trip, can take time off from work, and can really uh, separate and unplug. And you see those people coming back time and time again, in, in within like at, an, the- at a uh, at, at an amazing rate. I mean, we work with uh, a whole bunch of different country artists, a whole bunch of different music festivals, and we see crossover. I mean, to the point where people come to our 
our, our Yo Gabba Gabba parties, which you know I'm sure anybody here with kids understands what that is. If you don't, it's it's a it's, it's wrong. yeah. Um, but we have people that come to those, and we have people that come to our Eric Church parties. It could be the same person. They come to two things in New York, and you know they're just looking for something a little bit more. Um, they're looking for a closer connection, or look, they're looking for. I won't stop an experience that's tied to their favorite artist or something that they're really passionate about. And I was talking to someone that I work with uh, actually yesterday or this morning about these festivals can only have a certain amount of people. So there's a lot of people that are being left on the table, hundreds of thousands that can't go to these festivals. And I think that's what really where your your program really kind of fills that void. There's so many people that want to be at this show. They want to feel like they're at this show. And that's kind of where Live One comes in, right? Sure. And I think, you know, um, what we're trying to do is simply migrate um, what is a traditionally analog behavior of communication, um, you know, in and around an event um, to the digital digital environment and really giving people tools that will create a memorable uh, event while experiencing live stream content. And, you know, live stream content is never going to be uh, uh, a replacement for, uh, for a live physical concert. But I think, you know, having played uh, every major festival in the world and stood next to every inflatable beer can uh, that you can imagine, um, I know that, you know, the experiences, um, you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately for us, you know, as the Pumpkins kind of toured the globe and we thought, you know, 20,000 or 60,000 or 90,000 Belgians were showing up to see us, you know, what you soon realize is that it's really the environment that brings people together. It's the communication, um, it's the dialogue that happens in and around the content that makes the content successful. It's the contemplation of the content, the agreement that the content is valid, that the content is meaningful, and the communication that happens around that that really provides the environment in which it can be successful. Um, much like you know, uh, an art a piece of art would hang in a, in a lonely hallway versus an art gallery, that environment is much more conducive to the success of that piece of art. Um, I'd be curious to know, uh, just to play devil's advocate though, because I am you know a contentious artist, you know how much of the accessibility and purchasable experiences uh, would be available if it was 1995 and artists were still getting million dollar checks every quarter, um, like we were. Um, you know, back when we were selling, you know, two, three million records a year. Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting. I think, you know, for me, when I look at that, I wonder, like, is that a causation of the economics or is it really a causation of, like, there's, there's, there's additional access? So, you know, what is the answer to that? I think, you know, somewhere in the middle probably. But, but certainly, you know, as the economics kind of fell out and the bottom fell out of, of music revenue, you know, and the Pumpkins were, you know, very fortunate to have participated at a time where we sold lots of records, we still have a really rabid fan base that buys a lot of our product. We still sell almost a million records a year. Um, we've developed a business model uh, based on the super fan uh, or that you know 8 to 10% contingent that will buy anything we put out, and we'd be able to build economic proje- projections based on those numbers, and that, that gives us an ability to release box sets and know kind of not how to over-manufacture or over-produce. But that's all stuff you know that was begat out of the business model that we grew up in. In the modern context, I don't know how much of that would come into play. So just as a thought experiment, it would be interesting if you did hand, you know, Luke Bryan, you know, uh, $2, 3000000 million every quarter, how much he would feel like giving everybody access. Um, you know, fair question, to, right? To be clear, though, I think, I think at the, so there, there, there's various levels. At the highest levels of a Luke Bryan or someone, he is getting millions in sponsorship money. Sure. Difference is, is he's getting it from a beer company or a, a you know, or, or a brand that will push that in. So, I think that at the highest level, the economics are still kind of similar. But people are saying, I can make a million dollars a year in meet and greets and and that type that's of thing. That's real. So that's very can, real money. Can, yeah. can I agree? Can I interrupt for a second? I mean, this is many of you heard me speak before. Uh, I just think that one of the music industry is one of the great under monetized industries of the century. If you think about how much attention a typical consumer spends... um, By the way, anybody here easily offended? Okay, good. Um, uh, So if you think about how much attention and time the average consumer spends with music, engages with music, sorry about the word engagement, but it's 10x any other medium, whether it's sports, movies, you name it. Yet... It's a $70 billion industry, and frankly, that's fucking mice nuts. 
for the amount of attention that consumers spend, it should be a $700 billion industry. And for the longest time, royalties have been the crutch of the industry. It's really easy to do. Your business partners, your leaders, say, you know what, this is our business model. We're lawyers, we're finance guys. We're going to make royalties and make everybody, we're going to put a paywall. We're not going to let anyone listen to my music unless they pay me a buck a song or $15 a CD. And that's how we're going to monetize this industry. So we're going to keep all, everybody out, and we're going to monetize it a buck a song. Well, that's how you get to a $70 billion industry, which is small, tiny. If you take a look at what other industries have done, whether it's the NFL or the gaming, video game business or others, they want as many fans as possible. They want as many fucking fans as possible. Download my game. It's free to play. And play it. And they realize one thing. Fan segmentation and how you monetize each segment is extremely important. The top 1% of NFL fans, of video gamers, of content producers generate half the revenue. The top 1%. And the average ticket is about $10,000 per session, per play, per luxury box, or per NFL seat. $10,000. How many musicians do you know can charge $10,000 for anything? Very few. But you know what? My guess is that a lot more than you think. The other part, the dolphins, the middle tier, that's the other half of the music business. The bottom is the minnows. The minnows are the people that cannot afford or don't necessarily engage with music the same way. That's less than 1% of the revenue of all, this, of all these different industries. But they're an important piece of the puzzle because without the minnows, you're not going to get the dolphins. Without the dolphins, you're not going to get the whales. So there's an entire ecosystem. So frankly, the million dollar, $2 million that was generated in 1995 in royalty revenues was a crutch, and it held back the music industry being a much bigger business than it is today. And experience, in my opinion, is going to be one of the big pillars of how you get to a $700 billion industry. And experience is not just meet and greets. It's going to be a whole package of things. I think musicians today have to be more than musicians. That's the unfortunate thing. Entertainers is where I mm -hmm. think the music business is going to go. No, I think you're absolutely right, Haiti. I think, um, I think really what's been extremely prohibitive about the nature of the business and the growth from an economic standpoint is just the lack of a place at the table uh, that the artists have. Exactly. And really, just like free agency uh, in sports, you know, artists and uh, artist managers need a free agency in recorded music in order to have a place at the table because, let's be honest, the artists control the, the revenue. They control the product. They're producing the product. Without the product, there is no conversation. There is no Spotify. There is no Pandora. There is no RDO. But again, and I've said this before, unless we want Motown all over again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be up to the artist to understand what the economic model is and, and demand a place at the table and understand what the business is moving forward because that's what turns a $70 billion industry into a $700 billion industry. And I think also when you look at the the key players in that, they're going to be the managers. They're going to broker every kind of deal possible. And at the moment, the management industry, I would say, is beholden to, uh, you know, there are some f phenomenal managers. Don't get me wrong. Again, don't want to offend anybody here, or maybe I do. But there are also managers who will take an extremely small check to get one little wedge up the pie, and they're terrified of getting fired by their artists continuously. Managers are going to hold the keys to the business to the business strategies moving forward. Because a lot of times the artists could be phenomenal artists and entertainers. That doesn't mean that they're going to be able to balance the books and it doesn't mean they're going to be able to have the vision and foresight to see what are the bullshit opportunities and what are the fantastic ones. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll definitely second that and say that the most successful programs that we have have direct artist involvement. They're involved in actually curating that experience. Um, and you know, to your point, where you know maybe some of this revenue is replacing some of the recorded music revenue, um, it's not just about that. I mean, it, a lot of these artists can raise ticket prices by twenty-five cents, fifty cents, and not do anything with us. Um, consistently, Luke Bryan or Florida Georgia Line, they'll come off stage, and um, you know, sometimes it shows them there, and uh, sometimes they'll say like, "Man, like this is some of the most fun stuff that we do." Like it really strips it all yeah. down. It gets them in a room with two hundred people, which is probably about what we have in here right now. Um, and they just play acoustic in front of people in a room that's about this size right before going on stage in front of 15,000, 20,000 people, and it really strips it down. Like, it gives them that connection with people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the money is good, and it's important, and obviously people wouldn't do something if it wasn't 
um, at least breaking even or profitable, but these guys love it too. It's a really special experience for the, them. These fan, these fan experiences or engagements work. I mean, they really work, and not just for the high-end artists, but also for the mid-tier and even the low-tier low artists. One example is uh, one of our company's band page just did a, uh, an experiences tour with a mid-tier band. Two weeks, $60,000. That's almost doubling their revenue that they generated in that, in that period. And it's not just revenue, where there's costs associated with it, it was actually almost pure profit to the bottom line because there was no costs associated with it. And that's the beauty about these, some of these experiences and how you do them. Now, the, the trick is how do you create scalable offers, scalable experiences? How do you keep them fresh and authentic to the fan? Because if they're not fresh and authentic, they're worthless. And that's the really the hard part. And that's the, probably the nitty-gritty But I think you also what you've got is you've got a market that, that has never seen this kind of right. thing before. I remember we did a study with Nielsen. Nielsen estimated there's $2.6 billion a year in incremental revenue left on the table because fans can't buy what they want. But when you said to fans across all sectors, not just aficionados, but also big box retail fans and, and, uh, and, kept more, more, and digital music consumers, when you said to them, who is interested in this type of experiential product? $9 billion a year alone, just in the U.S., and that was two years ago. So what you'll have is the experiences are going to be as fresh and creative as the artists that make them. Otherwise, you know, I mean, every album's got to be better than the next one, right? Yeah. The, the other important part is relevancy. Yeah. And that's the part I don't think the music business has figured out. All the ad businesses on the planet have figured it out, right? If you ever looked at a product at Amazon and then you went to Yahoo or Tinder, you found an ad for that same product you're looking at. It's kind of freaky, right? Well, think about the music business. Every time I like a song on Pandora, every time I add a song to a playlist or an artist to a playlist on Spotify, why am I not getting a message from that band saying, hey, we're in town. Hey, come see us. Hey, come play drums with us. Why isn't that happening? I mean, the, the ability to do that is there. Is it not? Right now, right? I mean, I think, and I also think a big issue with the scalability of this is the ability to execute on a very high level. Yeah. You, if you sell an experience, you can sell an experience that's telling somebody that um, you know, they're going to do X, Y, and Z, but if you don't do that, you don't do it perfectly, and you don't over-deliver, yeah. that experience is worth nothing, and it'll actually hurt the artist brand. Well, I think the big problem is the fax problem that we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. Right, the PDFs. Yeah, the PDFs. Yeah. I don't know if you want No, it's just uh, this. Uh, <laughs> we were talking earlier, we have all these experiences, we're, we're moving forward, but... You know, a, a little bit of Dan's problem is that he has his whole platform built on what he was doing in 2009 and hasn't had the time. To 2007. 2000. <laughs> sorry. Very modern. Were you thinking about it in 2005? Maybe. Uh, no, no. Okay. No. All right. Well, 2007. But he basically, it went so fast that he looked up and he's progressing, but the technology part hasn't hasn't met up, and you know, he's literally what? It, what you're printing? Yeah. You're printing faxes. Um, I mean, I uh, jokingly say that short of printing out emails that I get and respond to them, we're a pretty analog company. And I think that, you know, we, 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 we come at this from a very different perspective. Um, you know, we started very analog. We're boots on the ground. Every event that we have, we have people there. Um, and, you know, you guys do an amazing job at selling experiences that are all uh, based uh, digitally, either in part or in whole. Um, and now, this year, 2015, is the year that uh, I'm really focused on disrupting our entire business. Everything that CID does, I'm looking at, at how can we bring this into 2015? Um, how can we make this a lot more current? How can we introduce technology into what we're doing? Because we really aren't. I mean, it's I, really, you're yeah. buying travel packages online through the ticketing company that sells tickets for the festival. And, um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a pretty dated system. So we're I working think, hard to bring it current. I think also one of the interesting things is that the... The, the bigger streaming companies and the bigger companies that are going to be, you know, your Pandoras and your, and your Spotify's and whatnot, they are going to be the owners of masses and masses of data. And how much of that data can they or will they share with the artists so that you can surface said experiences? We're on the beginning path there, but it's, it's really in its infancy. I've been pushing for two and a half years to get fucking buy buttons into, into so various th areas. Think about this, right? As an artist... Fucking play my music for free, but I want instead of free, like instead of giving me point oh 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 nine cents for that song that you're gonna play, give me that fan's email address. Let me know when they like my song. Let me know how often they like that song. Show me where I should play my next concert. That's worth far more than the three hundred dollar check that you might get every every year from that, from Spotify. Right, but also, what else do they like? I mean, if yeah. they're you know, if you're a Lady Gaga fan, does that mean you're also a Megan Trainor fan? Does that mean you're not you know, likely? 
Really? Everyone has a guilty pleasure. It I might. like them both. <laughs> um, but, you know, even with, you know, consumer products, if you like one thing, does that mean you like another? And, like, connecting people that like... Well, in music, that's very tough. I mean, most of those algorithms, just because I like Metallica doesn't mean I like another rock. I might like Bob Marley think, to play next. Think of it a different way, though. Let's say, for example, that... I, I use this analogy a lot. Let's say that you're a fan of the song Orgasmatic by Buzzcocks, right? It's an amazing song. song. If you've listened to it 30 times on a certain service, pretty good indication that you're going to like anything that the Buzzcocks are going to spit out at you, right? And you could also say, what other bands would you like around that? You can make suggestions. So what I'm saying is, is on a one-to-one level, Buzzcocks fans would really like to know if they're in the studio making a new album, they get a handwritten lyric sheet signed by Pete Shelley, which $10, I have. $10,000. Yeah, I, I have it in my 10, office. What'd you pay? What'd you pay? Uh, 200 bucks. Oh! <laughs> But I'll sell it to you. Again, (laughs) you have no idea how much somebody's willing to pay for that. No, I absolutely agree. Remind me to tell you about the time I rode around Paris in the back of the Buzzcocks bus. Can only imagine. You can only imagine is right. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. So do water ginger ale. That's that's what the Buzzcocks got us to. Too funny. But I think um, one interesting thing is that that what we see at Live One, because we work in sports, eSports, um, fashion, you know, this monetization of peripheral content is not, not anything new. And when you see Coachella that sells out every year before the artists are even announced, people are buying those experiences. They've hit that economic glass ceiling. There's really only one way to go. That's to monetize the peripheral content. The experiences, you see it with the Chicago Blackhawks, with the Morning Skate. We work with sports teams, the Maple Leafs. They've sold the rights to the broadcasters. They've sold the rights to Rogers. They've got, a, they've got a finite amount of resources. They've sold out the United Center in Chicago every night. Blackhawks, Stanley Cup champions. <laughs> right? Um, Ouch. <laughs> he was Maybe just showing me the Rangers score before the, before the panel. Um, but the anyway, um, you know... The only, the only way to, 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 to add on to those economics is to start to monetize what's on the periphery. And that's what, that's what artists are doing as well. It's not any different in the sports world. They're monetizing that peripheral content. The morning skates, the autograph sessions, the, 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 the live stream of the conference afterwards, and all that stuff is adding value to the team. And that's, that's really how you play in the modern business world. Should we open up for the audience? Because it feels like these guys are really got lots of questions to ask. Where did that come from? Oh, so, it's just sorry. me. It's me speaking. <laughs> it's the voice of God. <laughs> or the, Xavier. Or the fucking suit. Xavier. I guess what, Xavier? Sorry. It's four zero. Mic check. It's four zero. I've just told. The Rangers have beaten the Pittsburgh Penguins four zero. Hi, my name is Xavier. <laughs> I'm with Social Sound System. Um, I have a question. Um, I have a touring bands, we're independent, we get the analytics, we get the touring stuff, we're doing the marketing, we're playing nationwide, we're doing live, you know, amphitheater tours. But part of the pushback I'm hearing from my bands is the experience thing. If you're an independent band, I mean, we know that we're supposed to be doing all these things. We know that your time and your experience is going to add more value than a little you know, poster that they sign or what have you. But how do you pull that off logistically or what, what recommendations do you have? I mean, these bands are traveling, you know, 14 hours from city to city. They load in and, like, they do a sound check. They do meet and greets. It's, like, feels like the cookie cutter, like, VIP nation, like, thing right now is do a sound check, then a meet and greet. Here's a fan laminate. It's not a, it's not a secondary, it's not a peripheral activity. It's a main activity. Mm-hmm. It's a main activity. So fucking schedule around it. Do, plan on it. Mm-hmm. Don't, like, it's, hey, we'll, we're, we've got six shows in six cities and we've got to do it these six days. Plan on this stuff. It takes time and it takes effort, but you can double or triple the revenue by just simply planning around it. I can honestly say that like, the Pumpkins did a great job of creating uh, a one-to-one connection with our fans. I still get emails from people that I made friends with 10, 20 years ago, and those connections are vital to the survival, the economic survival of the band they do pay dividends. And that, that, that connection, like the meet and greets and all that stuff, you're not just, you're not just, you're not just taking their money. You're, you're, you're gathering data on what your fans are like. I mean, the modern, the modern record label 
if it uses data properly, should be able to give you three key things in which to write songs around. I mean, can you imagine if we had, a, if we had an ability to pull a million people who had bought every David Bowie record and asked them to give us three things that they'd like to see from the new Bowie record and then handed those three, three things to David Bowie, what, how cool of a challenge that would be for Bowie as an artist and what a great representation of him as an artist we would get back. I mean, those are the kind of things that are cool about data that an artist can really wrap their head around. It's not, data is not just what's anachronistic about analog and just more of it. Like, how do we utilize data to really become, have a more cogent awareness of what, what we're doing and, and how for, we're touching people? And further to that, one of the things that we do is, is if we get artists that are struggling for things to do, we say, ask your fans. Absolutely. Push a survey out and say, what do you guys want? And you will get a list a mile long of, do you have the set list from the show in Phoenix in 1997? Because I want that one, and I want it with a boot print on it, and I'm willing to pay anything for it. They will suggest prices for you. They will suggest available windows when they will have you come and pay to be at their bar mitzvah, whatever it is. It depends on your thing. But ask fans <laughs> what they want. Because, you know, I, I, did a, I, I looked at this the other day. The top 100 artists in the world, if you look at their Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube followings, so there's obviously cross-pollination, but if you add them all together, it's 4.3 billion people. They have the collective power to ask 4.3 billion people. Let's, let's call it a billion. Wow. If they could ask a billion people, what do you guys want? Is the feedback going to be better than if you were to say to them, here's what we're going to sell you, here's where you should buy it and when, and it should come on this shitty sound quality at this time. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not how the internet works. It's, it wasn't designed for that, you know? Um, you know setting up 10,000 different siloed stores and sending a billion people to 10,000 different things. You know, the bands themselves are capable of asking fans exactly what they want and finding out that detail. One of the funny things is when you talk about tech companies, they'll base a big part of their valuation on the number of active users they have. Artists should do the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that really, like, it's overlooked about, about the Pumpkins is that, you know, the Pumpkins fan base was super opinionated, super critical, God bless them. But really, I mean, but really, because of their fickle nature, it really added to the artistic credibility of the band over years because we knew we weren't going to get away we weren't going to get a free pass. I mean, right. we knew our fans were like, they, they wanted like real Pumpkins branded stuff. Like it had to be of a high quality. We used to, our mantra was, it's that 10% extra that makes it 100% better than everything else. And that's the work ethic that we walked into rehearsal every day with. And I mean, our fans demanded it. I mean, we, we never got a free pass. So it was like that knowledge of our fan base that really added to our ability to have credibility in the space. Space. I think you're. I, I think you're right on there. Um, so to, to answer your question specifically, um, what could you do? What could you do as an artist? Is that you could really care? Like you could care about that experience just as much as the fans do, and know that like even though it might be a 15 minute chunk on your day sheet from 6:15 to 6:30, that might be the most important experience of that person's year, that person's life that person's, you know, season, whatever it is, and know that every time that these artists are interacting with fans who are traditionally super fans that are taking part in these packages, that's a monumental experience for them in their life. And if you understand that gravity and you care and you appreciate that, I don't think it's a chore at all. I mean, it's, it's part of your day, but it's, you know, you're really, you have an opportunity to make a difference in these people's lives. Cheers so to you, Dan. Cheers. That's awesome. So here's an interesting statistic, by the way. I just looked this up. The value per user for WhatsApp and Instagram is around $50 to $100, depending on who you ask. What's the value per fan for your band? And how much more time does your fan spend with your band yeah. than they do with Instagram but or WhatsApp? Is there a way to find that out? I mean, do you have some... So on, on our end, when we're doing a, a campaign, we find the average fan spends $61 per transaction. One of the reasons Nielsen studied us was because they couldn't figure out why no one wanted to buy 99-cent downloads, but they'd spend 61 bucks on the same product but with other things added to it. And when we looked at it, when you basically said to, the, to these fans, and we were specific, access to the making of the album while it is happening. Again, this is all stuff right. that, that, that tends to just not happen. You just ask them. And they'll tell you, we want to see it, we want to hear it first, we want this X, Y, and Z. 
they're, ironically, you know, you've got, you've got the madness of crowds, but they're really smart people. And the funny thing that bands forget is, this is the language fans speak. They don't understand a world anymore that doesn't have this type of interaction. They'll tweet major CEOs or people like this, and those people will respond. That's the language that, the, moving forward, that, that's not going anywhere. As Nick Bilton says, I live, in the, I live in the future, and here's how it works. And the customers of yesterday are not going to show up and say, I wish this thing had to be plugged into a wall. It's over. And I think when you challenge an artist who has a creative mind naturally to come up with something, say, expend 10% of your creative energy on something else, they got to do it. That's so, the language. I have a great story around this. So a very good friend of mine, musician, local musician in Bay Area, 100,000 Facebook followers, uh, really good band. I, I, I love him. Um, barely affords to pay his rent, barely affords the car payment, has... Did a Kickstarter project, was somewhat successful, but it was a pain in the ass because the logistics and the cost of what he offered was actually a lot more than he thought, so he didn't make a lot of money on it. But he got to meet some great fans, including some whales. So this particular artist decided that he wants to try his hand at art. So he drew some pictures, actually pretty cool pictures, but one of the people he met at Kickstarter gave him $10,000 for a piece of work. He didn't ask, he didn't put a price tag on it. He just said, here's a piece of work. And a fan emailed him, I'll buy it for $10,000. Now, he wasn't paying $10,000 for the artist, for the, for the painting. He was paying $10,000 for the artist, for the engagement with the artist, for like, helping uh, this artist foster and enabling his career because he liked the music and, of course, he liked the art. So that's just one example of how artists can make a lot more money without even knowing that they can make that kind of money on these other platforms and these other, other ways. Just before we move on to your question, um, I mean, you know, because a lot of your bands started at the Roxy, a lot of the bands that come into the Roxy actually make more money um, on their experiences. The ones that are actually doing the experiences, they make more on that experience than they do actually on playing the venue. So, I mean, there's uh, on the club level, um, obviously it's different when they start going into the bigger venues and into the sheds but on the 500 club level I think there's the, the money is very close to what they can make on an experience and what they're actually getting paid by the venue go ahead so I have a comment and a question so I was the CEO of a gaming company for 7 years and, uh, and we made $60,000 regularly from a number of users in a year 60 grand from one user in a year. Very typical. Uh, typical. And so, um, so being able to bring that into the music industry is the challenge. How, how do we bring the, the tools and the analytics and the ability to measure the, the LTVs, the lifetime values of fans? I think it's only a challenge because it's simply not offered at scale. It's not offered. I mean, you, you know, go to Beyonce's site and try and spend $200 today, minus a ticket. Try and do it. It's not possible. So the majority of artists that you'll go to, you'll try and do this for. Like, I'm, I'm a massive fan of certain bands. I've played, I've put, you know, 1,300 records, and I've got signed vinyl. I've got test pressings. Now, am I a, a strange, odd person? Granted, yes, I am. But at the same time, I've got, I've got hundreds of thousands of people doing this on a regular basis on our platform only because they can. And because artists spent 10%. I sat in a conversation once, right, with a band, and a gang of four, we're having this amazing conversation, and they go like, could we offer files of our blood? I'm like, I think so. So then we check with health and safety. You can check a certain amount of blood. So then we got an email from Pitchfork, question, whose blood is it? We had to confirm it was a mixture of John King and Andy's blood together in files, along with ceramic tiles depicting world events in world history painted. Why the fuck not? People bought it. That's a scalable business. But we want to. <laughs> How many pints of blood can you give without dying? We'd have to Google that. Okay, up <laughs> down. Any other questions out there? <laughs> you just spawned a thousand anemic I bands. I hope you know that. We're keeping this PG-13 back here. The blood at least is a renewable resource, right? <laughs> uh, renewable resource? <laughs> yeah. uh, just a comment, you know, as I listen to a lot of the people today, uh, it just seems like there's a lot of the uh, 
same old wine, new bottle kind of attitude, which is, you know, I, I was listening to Ted downstairs. I wonder how many times he bought a Steely Dan song. From the first album he bought to today, he's now streaming it. He's probably bought it five, six times. What you're saying, and I think is what it's all about, is we got to give it a new experience. There's got to be a new way to interact with the music, a new way to interact with the fan besides sitting your ass down and listening to them play. It's, it's just different, and that's what people are expecting. And if the bands that are going to do it, are gonna, they're going to move forward. And the ones that don't, well... They better be happy with what they got. I mean, again, to the point I was saying, if there's 4.3 billion people just in the social footprint alone, when has there ever been a time where you could tweet to that many people and they will auto-repost exactly what you tell them to do? Amanda Palmer was amazing in this sense, the way that she utilized you know, technology. And she views it literally as a tool. It's not a, it's not a, it's her job. The artists that we see, we, we've seen... There's one artist who's done three quarters of a million dollars just in pre-sales for albums before they've ever existed. And he views every release, every album he's making as an event. And it's got the direct-to-fan component, and he thinks and he asks his fans what they want. Again, they call bullshit because they're very discerning. Um, he just asks them, and they tell him, and then he offers it, and they pay him. Hmm. And they still stream it, and they still go to shows. It, this, this doesn't take away from anything. But what it's doing is, is it's activating that one creative part of the brain that, that otherwise it goes... I mean, look, if the sum total of your, of your job as a musician is to put it on plastic compact disc or into MP3 format, if that's all you got, resign. Quit. Yeah. There's, there's two big problems that you need, you need to solve. We need to solve what the experiences there are and make sure those are scalable experiences that you can do over, over time and you need to figure out who your audience is, how you segment that audience, how do you s- segment the experiences to that audience, and then how do you get the audience to buy it? To get the audience to buy it at the right moment in time. The streaming services, whether it's Pandora, Spotify, Lyric Find, RDO, the places where fans go look for music is the best place. So, I mean, like, again, I go back to how Bandpage does it. They figure out when you hit a like on Spotify or hit a like on Pandora, and if you are a band that has an offer on their platform, bam, it shows up. It's like an ad unit. I don't know if you remember back to the CPI business. I mean, that's basically it. For anybody who does the music in the gaming business, they know what the CPI business is. You get the fan exactly at their moment where they are have intent to buy, and you make sure that the offer fits the profile of the, band, of the fan, and you can double, triple, quadruple, and hopefully 10x your revenue as a band. And, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that they have to feel good about it. You know, these are fans. These are not customers. These are not people that we're looking to maximize each individual transaction. These are people that, you know, you want them to feel good about these artists and about these festivals for 20 years. Do not do the Zynga model. And I mean, we we both work on... Only one person got that, by the way. Dan and I both work on Coachella, and people have the greatest time of their life and then they share that with their friends and that's one of the reasons that 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 Coachella is successful is because there's this like this passion this love for for that and it's because the experiences are executed properly and they they have that moment and they're able to share it with their friends and their brothers and their sisters and I mean I have little I've been going to Coachella my whole life now I have my little brothers are going to Coachella and and and, and that next generation it's because it's executed you know in, in a way to create experiences that last a lifetime. There's I mean, also, no, okay. sorry, okay. Uh, j- just to touch on the Coachella thing, um, I think the reason that what you guys have created and what we've helped um, spread over the past few years, uh, the reason it's been so successful is because we all love it too. Mm-hmm. You know, like we are, you know, and I see Gopi over there and you right here, like you guys are like, you know, we're, we're a family. We're a team that produced this amazing event together, and we love it. And the same love and passion that we put into it, the people who go to the show, they feel that. So, you know, who can, like, selling experiences is one thing, but creating them and, like, over-delivering for people, that's, that's everything. That's, yeah, unless you do that, anyone can sell. Every single person in this room right now could sell words on the Internet. It's, you know, it's really making those words come true. That's the hard part, and that's really the trick. One interesting thing that you guys self-identify as Coachella goers and Mm -hmm. um, Smashing Pumpkins fans self-identify as Smashing Pumpkins fans. 
I was at a show once for one of our bands that we worked with called The Headstones in Toronto. And people that I, I saw, literally 300 people with shirts on the back that said, I pledged. And they were self-identifying as people who had been involved in the experience itself. And one of the interesting things is how many people identify themselves as, I'm a Spotifyer, I'm a Pandora, or I'm a, you know, how is it? So not everyone will, because they won't care. They just want it to play. But for the segment of the audience that does, that want to have an affinity, they're going to do it nine times out of ten with the band. So you got to, I think artists have to find a way to allow that segment of fans to self-identify as fans, and that has to mean something to your exact point. Because otherwise, if they're just identified as consumers, you cut off their ability to spend and their ability to share, interact, and participate. Amen. But it starts with, it starts with that first meet and greet and, yeah. and, and just things that we owe fans in general. I mean, we're talking, again, about added-on experiences, whether it's Coachella or it's a show at the Roxy. That just basic concert goer needs to have a, a, a real experience. We owe that to them, not just the person that's paid the extra money that's going to go meet the band afterwards, but that's how you transition that person from the person that just pays $15 to the person that next time around pays 30 or, 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 or $60. Um, so my question is, you guys were talking about you know, the Beyonce's of the world, the ones that don't provide those, that ability to really buy and purchase that $200 um, amount that some of these whales are looking to buy. How do you guys, can, how do you guys see us able, being able to convince these major players to start providing that? Is it going back to the locals? I'll, I'll just, I mean, I don't want to bring up Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> you just you did. Have to. No, uh, you, have you, to. you talked to me about it earlier. I think yeah. I was just repeating what you said. You're going to no. down your beer now. Oh, damn. Uh, but, I mean, we saw a small example over the last couple of weeks that someone offered just a little bit more than the average album release. And there's probably a lot of those sales where people trying to get those Polaroids and buying a couple copies of that record. So, I mean, she offered something different, and it, it was a little glimpse into this will work on a very you know large scale. Obviously, there's only a few artists like Taylor Swift, but she did show if you give people the option they might buy more than just one. I, I think it speaks to your point about being comfortable with those 90s level advances and those 90s levels of income. It's going to be hard to explain to someone that they should do that. I know some mega bands that I've pitched, you know, hey, you should monetize this part, and they look at you like, why? I don't understand. Uh, I have a mansion house. I don't need to give away my blood. And, um, uh, but, but eventually, the grind might get hard to where they have to. But what I looked at it was is, they're just not seeing what's left on the table. Certain people don't care. I do. So I, well, I think uh, I think one thing it. is um, you know that we we talk about you know marketing and <clears throat> social media and to your point, it really starts with a great song. I mean, Corgan and I used to talk about Virgin and Ken Berry and Nancy Berry. They call us up. Hey, we want to talk about how we're going to market this single. And our answer, our stock answer always was, if we got to talk about marketing a single, we'll go write a better single. <laughs> so we don't have to talk about marketing. Because a great hit song, like Up, Up, and Away in a Beautiful Balloon, doesn't need to be marketed. Or it needs to be marketed a lot less than a song that needs to be marketed like a CPI ad. Our job as musicians is to write compelling art is to craft songs that are unforgettable. When we do that, all the other things fall into place. You know, people used to ask me all the time, what would you be doing if you weren't playing the garden tonight? Or what would you be doing if you weren't playing at 20,000 people at the United Center? And I would, my stock answer was, I'd be playing some shithole for free because I'm a musician and that's what I do. So... You can talk about marketing plans and social media and all that other bullshit, <laughs> but if you ain't got the goods and you haven't written a hit song, you're screwed already, and you're just wasting your time. Bam! There the it truth is. has been spoken, and you know, end it. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good night. Call that a mic drop. Thank you. Any questions? 
Oh, watch this. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. 25 years ago and spent so many years there. I know Bali and Indonesia much better than I know this country. The question is, you guys have You're a lucky man. in Bali. What can I do for you? I know music, everything. Music, Sorry, I don't think your mic was on there. For Bali? We'd all like to go to Bali, all yeah. of us. So What's the best diving hole? <laughs> Are you offering to take us to Bali? <laughs> That's what I heard. That's a great experience. I'm yeah, no, we're in. We're all in. We're I'm a big fan yeah. of Moyo Island, actually. Yeah. That's one of the better <laughs> islands there. We'd like to go. Yeah, we'd all like to go. We Together. should meet there Did you, do you fly and talk private? about do you, it. Do you fly private? <laughs> <laughs> well, we do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the whale experience to Bali. Here it is. I'm signing up. <laughs> Anyone else? I think it's getting away from Go for it. <laughs> hey, this is a question for Hani. Um, aside from obviously pledge music, uh, what is the best execution of a minnow... Dolphin whale tech app that you found because I, I heard you talk about this a couple years ago. Just in that time, what's the, the best app or solution you found so far aside from Pledge Music? So uh, I'm going to talk about non-music apps because I'm I, I, I don't want to. We've invested in a lot of music companies and I don't want to play favorites. But um, so one of the best game apps that I've seen out there that actually goes after uh, both, like the sharks, minnows, whales, dolphins, widows, males, is uh, a game called League of Legends uh, by Riot Games. Thank you. It, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a great game. Uh, they've figured out how to monetize each of these segments very effectively without alienating anyone. They don't feel like they're burned. Like Zynga burns the whales. Like they, quote-unquote... I'm going to take every penny out of that bitch's purse every month that I can. That was a quote I got from a senior management team member at Zynga. That is how you burn players. You don't want to do that. You want to under-promise and over-deliver on everything you do as a game company and as a music company as well. So I look at the, look at the, the monetization strategy of League of Legends. Is it's incredible. And the fan base and the loyalty of that fan base is amazing. The other thing I really like is the subscription-based services around this which means you're a loyal customer and you're back and back and you're sitting next to a guy who knows how to do subscriptions right now. He's my little brother, uh, uh, Bora. Uh, they've figured out how to do subscription constant music and it's working and it's working beautifully. Now the problem is they're trying to figure out how to fill demand. So there's lots of ways where you can incrementally monetize your fans. And I hate using that word, monetize fans. It sounds so capitalistic, but I am a fucking suit and I'm trying to make more money for the business. <laughs> And so you, you've got to figure out how to authentically monetize and make people feel good about spending money with you as a user. And so there's a lot of examples in the gaming world where you can do it right and you can do it wrong. Yep. To put it in context, um, to Haiti's point, League of Legends last year sold out to Staples Center in three minutes for the championships. And that weekend, 32 million concurrence over three days to watch the League of Legends championship. Right? Yeah. Dustin Beck, those guys... They've dialed it in. They know what the hell they're doing. They put together something that lives digitally, lives in a digital market that's the equivalent to a third of the Super Bowl that's taken how many years to put together? What the fuck? Are you a drummer, an entrepreneur, and now a, music, a, a gamer? What the hell? I know my shit, man. You make me sick. <laughs> right? You've been handed the five-minute mark. <laughs> right? So... Look, look one, one thing I'll say about League of Legends, Let's right? And, and MLG. And, Let him talk. I'm just no, done. No, 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 one, one quick thing. What, they, what these guys have done, and this is similar to what we did in the 90s, they've identified a cultural movement and they've learned how to monetize it. The culture contains power. It contains economic power, just like your fans. Once you understand the cultural movement, it's just a matter of monetizing that movement. E-gaming is a massive digital cultural movement. They live in the digital world. They can be monetized in the digital world. Music is an analog cultural movement. It has to start analog. It can move digitally. It can migrate that way, but it has to start analog. League of Legends is a great business model uh, to look at to run a modern music, com a modern music company. Another company you guys should look at, I, and this, is, this probably won't work. Feed me US. another one. Uh, a company called YY. <laughs> a company called YY. It's basically a karaoke platform. Asian, right? Right. It's, a, it's an, another portfolio, <laughs> GGV portfolio company. It is, it's making 
amateur artists fifty thousand dollars a month. Yeah, because they're really good at what they do. People and people paying, buy virtual items. People subscribe to channels. They right. watch uh, uh, independent uh, artists perform karaoke uh, on their phone, and they send them uh, virtual gifts. Dude, right? you want to be a VC, right? You want to be a VC? You're, you're, you can have my job. I'll, I'll just play drums, and you can have my job. I don't think that suit will fit me, man. <laughs> All right, one last Peace, question. Brother. One last question. Anyone, anyone? Brian Zisk, you have a question? In the back, in the back. Oh, here he is. Oh. What can we oh. do to make this better if we ever do it again? Uh, uh, beach. This event? Beach, Travel packages. Beach, palm, palm trees, coconuts, uh, Maui. Hawaii, Maui. Let's do it in Bali. Let's do it in Bali. Let's do it in Bali. We have a sponsor. We have a sponsor. No, we're going to Maui. How many people are going to Maui next year? Yeah! We need all. All right, we're going to Maui. There's a, there's a question in the back. Question in the back. Yeah, so my question was, how do you deal with or your thoughts on this sort of backlash um, that some fans experience? There have been some articles written about the VIP experience and that kind of separating fans and how certain fans then are turned off from the experience as a whole or there's you know these other mini communities forming within and um, how do you see that changing or evolving with so the specific article you speak of, the one in Rolling Stone, where yes. thank you, um, <laughs> where the voice um, of God. you know, I don't know if anybody took uh, journalism in junior high school or high school, but um, the <laughs> arguments were based in people's thoughts about what other people were thinking, saying that oh, they those people, those people in VIP, they I, I feel like they're not even here for the music, so. I can speak directly to that and say that some of the people that we have in our programs are extremely passionate music fans that have gone to the, you know, the GA ticket experience or the lawn ticket experience hundreds of times, thousands of times. And the reason they're coming to these concerts is to see live music. You can create an experience for yourself. You can go to the best restaurant in San Francisco. You can have an Uber take you there and back. You can go uh, see, you know, you can go back to your house where there's an impeccably clean bathroom, and you can you cannot go to a concert, and you can have an, a, a first-class experience. But these people, they're going to Bonnaroo, they're going to Coachella, they're going that extra mile so that they can see live music. These are huge music fans. Um, so to that backlash, I, I, that backlash doesn't really exist. And what we do, we work so hard to make sure that every single person going to a show has an amazing experience. And our programs, there's never going to be big neon light saying VIP only stay out if you can't afford this like everything that we do is is tasteful and it's tactful and you know some of our some of our experiences are $60 shuttle passes to, to Coachella that get you back and forth every day all day so um, to that backlash um, I, I, I would I would I, I would say that they should really think about um, what is everybody here for everybody's here to really experience the music and you know, it's not really an us versus them. It's all one thing happening. And the finances of those experiences sometimes support the affordability of the other experiences. So if Very a $99 GA ticket is available, but a $700 VIP ticket is available, those things go hand in hand. The $99 ticket would be $199 or would be $169 if the $700 VIP ticket wasn't available. So it's all, it's all really one thing happening. Also, these types of fans really do focus on quality. I know that when I was doing customer service for Pledge when we first started, if an artist shipped out a thousand vinyl and a hundred of them had a slightly bent edge in the packaging, we would get a hundred emails. And I remember when we first hired a customer service person, she was like, why are they so angry? It's a piece of vinyl. And I'm like, no, no, no. They've watched this album being made. They've waited for it. They're ready. So we literally have to go in and do absolute quality control on those types of things arriving to the point at which our company basically refunds even if we're going to lose against that because that artist fan experience is so important. You're dealing with a very, very niche market. The worst I got was I got an email from someone saying, the fade out on the CD version was at 4 minutes and 57 the version that you guys sent in the digital download flak file was actually at four minutes and 32. What's happening to those remaining seconds? <laughs> but you know what? I found out. <laughs> and it was worth it. And he's like, whoa, that was amazing. So you can... Uh, the, 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 a lot of people will, will... It was a very boring story of what happened. But, um, 
But what you'll find is, is that if, if the company offering it really goes above and beyond to try and fix that problem, you're not going to fix it for 10,000 people or for a million people, but you will fix it for that one and that social message that you care and that it's important enough for the artist to answer that one person will have a huge effect on it. I've seen, I've seen fans rally around their bands when artists are saying this has not been good and they're like, but I, it's been amazing for me, it's been amazing for me. Have you checked with the Pledge guys at Pledge Music? Are you checking this stuff? So it's, it's not an easy one when you're dealing with super fans because they are their own animal. I know I'm one of them. I get pissed off when, when it goes wrong. But So I'm going to wrap it up here. Let's give everybody a hand up here. And just really quick before you guys leave, one of the best experiences in our business is SF Music Tech. Yeah. And let's give Brian Zisk here a huge hand. It's because of folks like you that make it happen. It's because of folks like you that make it happen. I don't know if we're going to do this again, but this spirit will live on. And my beautiful wife, Shoshana, and it was her who did it. Thank you. And, and we got the booze open downstairs. And thank you all so much. I, can't, I just can't thank you enough. Thanks, guys. Dream, we dream, what have to do?